What's up, guys? It's David Hess from the Rising Above podcast. Have you ever thought or dreamed about starting a podcast? Well, look no further. Anchor has all the tools necessary to record a podcast from your computer or phone. You heard that right. They make it so simple. When you host your podcast on Anchor, they will distribute your podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Honestly, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place, which is why I host on Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. By the age of 11, I was smoking on a pretty regular basis. And I can remember 11 being the first time I got drunk. Wow. Uh, and so at 11 years old, I was with my friends drinking Jack Daniels. Wow. Um, and, it, and that became a pattern um, as well as drugs. Hey everyone, the voice you just heard is that of Tim Thomas. Tim talks about what life was like growing up, from running the streets, drinking and doing drugs and hanging with the wrong crowd, to getting married, settling down and finding Jesus. No matter if you believe in God or not, we can all learn something from his life story. I hope you find his story as inspiring as I did. I'm your host, David Huss. This is Rising Above. Enjoy the show. So, Hey Tim, how are you doing? Doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing good. I want to thank you for coming on the Rising Above podcast, and uh, you're you know here to share a little bit about your life story and uh, a little bit about your childhood and kind of how that influenced your your life as as an adult and and whatnot. So, uh, without further ado, would you mind kind of sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really, the first thing I want to tell you, David, is I really want to thank you for for your vision to put this podcast together. Um, I, I definitely see a huge need for it. I've definitely thought about how could I share my story and maybe help somebody else rise above their circumstances. And I just haven't had that avenue. So I really appreciate you, your vision to do this and uh, hoping it's very successful. Well, thank you. I, I hope so as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, my story starts kind of like everybody's in childhood. And um, mine was not exactly picture perfect, <laughs> as, as most people's aren't. But, um, you know, I, I w- I'm a little hesitant to talk about some of it because as I get into this, you're going to see um, my parents aren't always painted in a really positive light. And I just want to say I, I recognize they were young. They're not the same people today that they were back then. I have no grudges or ill feelings toward my parents. Um, So I just want to say that. But as it turns out, um, I'm I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, And as far back as I can remember, it was pretty dysfunctional. Um, So I'm the oldest. um, Then I have a sister and two brothers. Um, And what I remember back to my earliest childhood memories is my parents fighting. Uh, and the fighting was pretty nasty. And um, I remember being scared a lot when my parents would fight. It, it wasn't a situation where somebody was being abused. I remember it more as mutual fighting. And I can remember sometimes my mom would grab a broomstick and chase my dad and he'd run in the bathroom and hide. And at other times they would be physical with each other. And I can remember you know, them getting in like a physical clinch and pulling each other's hair. And one time my dad kind of jerking my mom's hair and hurting her neck. And 
Um, sometimes they'd end up rolling on the floor and uh, I can remember them spitting each other's face. And um, so not a, not a good, you know, environment. But um, the, the other thing is both of my parents have suffered from um, some mental illnesses. Um, and again, I don't want to spend this whole podcast on my little one-off aside notes, but but I do want to just say something about that. It, uh, keep in mind, I'm I'm 54 years old, so the time period that I'm talking about now is in the early 70s. Okay. okay. And I I think there's still a lot of stigma attached to mental illness. Um, a lot of times, mental illness is viewed as weakness, um, which is kind of bizarre, you know. I mean, it, it's it's a problem with the brain. And, you know, if somebody is diabetic and they need insulin, we don't look at that as a weakness. Somebody has heart issues. We don't look at that as a weakness. But for some reason, there's this stigma attached to mental illness. Right. And and it was even probably more so back in the early 70s. Right. So so both of my parents kind of struggled and um, my mom especially did. Um, And I can remember. she was actually hospitalized because of her her um, problem she was having, and I was just a little kid. Um, one one time in particular, uh, you know, I was again the oldest of four, so I was the only one that was actually in school. I was I was seven, which would have made the other siblings um, four, three, and newborn. Wow! Um, and I came home from school one day, and my mom wasn't there, and I kind of. Nobody was home, actually. And some neighbors picked me up. And um, I really was young, didn't understand what was going on. But looking back now, it was my mother was hospitalized and needed to be hospitalized for for her illness. And uh, at the time, my dad was working for a a local pharmaceutical company, my factory worker, basically. But he worked second shift. So second shift was 3.30 p.m. to midnight. Right. Um, so he couldn't take care of me because, you know, I went to school and I was home at night. So he, he was unable to take care of me. Um, my mom, obviously hospitalized, couldn't take care of me. Um, the younger siblings, they all went off to stay with my grandparents um, who lived out in the country, uh, out in a rural area of, of Indiana. Um, so they were they were fine. Well, taken care, of, but there was the issue of what to do with me. Um now, I know about your story and your brother, and, and I've heard a lot about foster care, and I don't really know what the foster care system was like in the early 70s, uh, but I never was put into that system. Um, it was more kind of an informal foster care, you might say. Okay. Um, I got kind of kind of tossed from neighbor to neighbor, um, and what really complicated the situation for me was um, I was a bedwetter. Um, that's not super comfortable to talk about, but um, I think it's probably more common than we know. But yes, I, I was a bedwetter, especially with kids with <clears throat> exactly, yeah, exactly. There and you know and that's the other thing. Kids, neighborhood kids, can be just grossly cruel. Um, so you know, on a daily basis, people in the neighborhood used to make fun of me about my mom and the problems that she had. Um, but anyway, so I got tossed from kind of neighbor to neighbor and I was pretty young. So my my time, you know, thinking about time and how long I was with one neighbor 
versus another is kind of fuzzy, but, you know, it wasn't real exciting for people to take in this kid that uh, peed all over their furniture, you know, or I slept on a lot of couches and stayed at some different neighbors at sometimes I, I stayed with some family members or friends of the family. And um, much like the foster care system, not all of them were nice to me. Um, um, I can remember one old couple that I stayed with one time and I can remember waking up and their house was freezing and I was standing there in my wet clothes that morning, you know, shivering. And I remember the man like saying stuff, yelling at me and saying stuff to me like, well, you wouldn't be so cold if you didn't piss all over yourself and, oh, wow. you know, wow. things like that. So, yeah, not the most, not the most loving environment. Um, and that was a, that was a I'm sorry. So that was one of your neighbors? Yeah, that that was like an older couple that I stayed with for a while that they lived outside the neighborhood. And I'm not really sure how or how many different people I stayed with, but it was a lot. And my mom's hospitalization, um, it happened over a couple of years where like she would go in the hospital and be in there for months at a time. Um, And, you know, I can remember certain things because it revolved around the holidays. So I remember for like a couple of years in a row. My mom would go into the hospital before Thanksgiving and not come out until after New Year's. So she would be in there like for Christmas and stuff. um, But uh, yeah, and there was I mean, there are just so many things. Again, the 70s were a different time than than now. And I can remember being in situations that you just couldn't imagine a seven year old kid being in. Um, One thing I remember, there was one period of time where I stayed with my aunt and uncle um, but he drove a bread truck. So he had like a bread route. So he had to start work really early in the morning. So the only way they could get me to school was for him to drop me off at the school at some really ridiculous hour, like five o'clock in the morning. Wow. And, and I remember the school wasn't even open yet, but like there was like a, a foyer area. So there was one door I could get in and then the school was locked. And he, he would take me there and drop me off. And I would go inside that first door and just sit there and wait for the janitor to come in. Wow. Uh, so there I was, like, seven-year-old kid. Just, so just, yeah, some strange, bizarre situations. Um, but, um, you know, eventually my my mom got – she got better. And I think part of it was when my parents got divorced. So um, when I was nine, my parents got divorced. Um, so that means my other siblings were like five, four, and two. Um, but the interesting thing is, you know, how I, I looking back and I think, how could my mom have bought, gotten better? Um, you know, they were she was in that, that marriage and they were they were just not right for each other for sure. But you know, so there, my mom had custody of us um, through the week. And then my dad would take us, I, I can't remember if it was every weekend or every other weekend. Um, so again, it's probably very difficult for both of them to try to manage four kids on their own. But my mom definitely had the hardest part to have us um, through the week. But um, she went to work uh, as a secretary for an organization. So somehow she was working full time, um, taking care of all of us, dealing with daycare and I, I don't, I really, I don't even know how she's, how she managed all that. Um, But I can tell you one thing. um, 
we never went without food. We never went without the basic necessities. We were never abused, so to speak. But what we were was neglected, um, which I, you know, look again, looking back, I don't hold the grudges against my mom because I don't know how she did what she did. But we were pretty much left to ourselves a lot. And so um, we kind of like ran the neighborhood. Um, I can remember being 10, 11 years old, hanging out with my friends. We grew up about two miles from the Indianapolis 500. And I can remember being out there the night before the race with everybody partying and everything. And I was just a little kid just hanging out. Wow. Um, So I, I think for the most part, especially as the oldest, if I was out of sight, um, you know, I was kind of out of mind. Um, and so, you know, there's somewhat of an element of Lord of the Flies, you know, <laughs> like when, when the kids are left on their own, uh, it devolves into chaos. Right. Yeah. Um, right. But, um, you know, I, I started hanging out with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and I, I should probably point out, cause I think it's somewhat relevant. This, where we grew up was in a government subsidized apartment complex. Uh, I guess sometimes people call that the projects. Okay. Um, So there were a lot of kids in the exact same scenario. I mean, again, this is the early 70s. So this is kind of the beginning of what was referred to as latchkey kids. You know, um, parents divorcing, a lot of kids on their own after school, letting themselves in, taking care of themselves. So it wasn't like I was the only one in that situation, but. So all my friends were pretty much in that same situation. We all kind of ran around and got in a lot of trouble together. Um, And as the oldest of four, a lot of times I was kind of the protector for the other ones. I know I heard that um, from Michael and I heard that from you with your little brother. And I kind of fell into that role as well. And um, and my brothers and sister really used it to their advantage They would go out and cause trouble with neighborhood kids. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, I'll get my big brother over here. And uh, (laughs) I might have been guilty of that once or twice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It kind of happens. You know, you you feel a little bit uh, bolder and empowered when you've got a big brother to, you know, so I got in a lot of fights. I mean, that was I got in a lot of fights. And I will say this, um, getting punched in the face is not always a bad thing. <laughs> it can really make you kind of rethink things, you know? Right, yep. uh, sometimes I think that might be missing from our society today. Not that I think we should do that, but. I, I, I agree. I mean, it shouldn't happen, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah, it, it's, it's, there's it's, a lot of people I think, you know, if you got hit in the face one time, you might rethink how you're talking to people. Right, yep. Yeah, well, I, unfortunately, I also would be the perpetrator against my sister and brothers. Okay. Um, so I was a, a lot of times a little rough with them. I mean, a lot of the, the friends that I hung around with, um, that's where the abuse came in, in my life. Because even though they were my friends, I was hanging out with them every day. Um, they, they were older than me. And a lot of them had older brothers. And I think maybe their older brothers bullied them. And they kind of would go, you know, but that kind of stuff is passed on. Right. Um, bullies right. often bully people. Yeah. Um, people hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So um, I can remember them just like sitting around bored and like they would come up with these wild ideas like, okay, Timmy, 
I was Timmy back in those days. Uh, okay, Timmy, I'm going to give you three choices. I can either punch you in the groin one time really hard, or I'll punch you five times in your thigh as hard as I can, or I'll punch you ten times in the arm. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, those were my only options, right? So I'd be like, okay, in the arm. You know, I spent a lot of times a lot of my life and during that time pretty bruised up. Uh, and a lot of times I would bring that home and I would do the exact same thing to my brother. Right. You know, um, it was, it was bad, but unsupervised, you know, we kind of did a lot of things. Um, and the other thing with the neighbors was the drugs and alcohol and smoking. And, um, you know, I have four kids of my own now and I can't even imagine any of them being in the, any of the situations I was in. So again, with my parents being divorced when I was nine, me running the neighborhood, by the age of 11, I was smoking on a pretty regular basis. And I can remember 11 being the first time I got drunk. Wow. Uh, and so at 11 years old, I was with my friends drinking Jack Daniels. Wow. Um, and, it, and that became a pattern, um, as well as drugs. Drugs, um, were pretty prevalent. Um, I imagine if you <laughs> grew up what you call, you know, the projects, um, you know, drugs and alcohol are probably rampant, you know, within the neighborhood. They were, yeah. And definitely in the crowd I was running with. Um, fortunately for me, you know, it was, again, it was the 70s. So um, I did every drug that came my way. Um, but I never saw heroin in my neighborhood. And I think that was probably a little before cocaine became popular. Okay. So, but it, it was a lot of marijuana. Uh, I can, I mean, in like seventh and eighth grade, I think I smoked pot almost every single morning at the bus stop before school. So I was going to school high almost every day. Uh, and then on the weekends, I would just tell my mom, Hey, uh, I'm going to stay all night with a friend. And, you know, I, she had no clue what was going on. It's, Never, never gave me any trouble. It was like, okay. And I would disappear, be gone all weekend and all kinds of stuff would be going on. But, um, that was, uh, there was a lot of, um, so there was a lot of pot, hash, um, LSD, um, a lot of pills, uppers, downers. That was, that was the days when there was a, a popular pill called Quaaludes. And, okay. So that was, that was pretty popular in those days. Um, and frankly, there were a lot of times that I got myself in situations where it's just a miracle that I'm not dead. Um, but um, things really changed around the time that I got to high school age. So interestingly, at age 15, you know, so I've been using drugs and smoking and drinking for about four years at that time. At the age of 15, somehow I came to the idea that drugs are stupid. And so at age 15, when a lot of people are starting, I, I quit using drugs. Uh, but I still drank quite a bit. Um, but, but in high school, early, early in high school, um, I got in some trouble, got in a fight at school. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for my mom. And um, she decided I was going to go live with my dad. And so I did go move with my dad. And, you know, it's not... It's not that my dad was in some way a better parent. I mean, 
But for me, the change of environment had a huge impact. So all of a sudden I was not in that environment. Um, he, he lived in an apartment complex, but it wasn't, it was a little bit nicer. There wasn't kind of that influence. And when I got into high school, I got involved with marching band. So I played trombone and, um, and I really loved that, got into the band and the band was really a good thing for me at that time. It kind of gave me a positive place to put my energy. And so I kind of became a different person around that time. Um, and during high school, my mom actually had worked herself to the point where she got an opportunity for a promotion that moved her from Indiana to North Carolina. And so she moved with my sister and my two brothers to North Carolina. And, you know, that physical distance, as well as the fact that I moved in with my dad and I started doing better, it created kind of a real distance with me and my mom. Uh, in our relationship that, that lasted for many, many years. Um, but anyway, the high school band gave me a lot of pr uh, productive things to do. And I met a girl and we started dating. And um, she came from a really nice family. Um, to be honest with you, if I were her parents, I would have not let me anywhere near their daughter. But um, they were always so nice to me welcomed me as part of the family. And I, and I can remember going to their house for dinner and seeing this man and his wife and they had four kids too, coincidentally. Um, and I could see the love in the family. They would sit around the table and eat dinner together and laugh. And something happened to me at that time. And I said, that's what I want. That is this, this is what I want out of my life. Um, and that really stuck with me. Um, after after high school, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, which was go to college. I applied to Indiana University in Bloomington, got accepted, and I, I went down there to college. I took out student loans, but I was lost, man. I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I took classes that were supposed to help me figure out what to do, and I, I just couldn't get it figured out. Um, and so one day I was talking to a friend of mine who was in, still in Indianapolis. And my, he was my best friend all through high school. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about joining the Army. And I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So we decided to join the Army uh, under what they called the buddy system, where you were supposed to be guaranteed to go through training together. As it turns out, we never spent one day in the Army together. Oh, wow. but, uh, but anyway, it it, um, it was a really good thing for me. So I joined the Army, uh, but unfortunately, I took a lot of my bad habits with me, and um, I didn't really make the most of it. I got in a lot of trouble in the Army, uh, but at least nobody had to bail me out. I was on my own, uh, but it was the drinking. Were you still with that, that girl from high school? Um, yeah, so we it, that relationship survived for about two years into the Army. Okay. But uh, it, it was actually just my drinking and just um, very low self-opinion of myself that um, I essentially self-destructed that relationship. I think there was something inside me that was like, I'm not worthy of this girl and her family. And and um, I sort of self-destructed that okay. and uh, really was about to self-destruct myself because I was just drinking so heavily. I was getting in a lot of trouble. It was, it was always for underage drinking or 
you know, I got in a fight outside of a bar one night and got arrested for that. Um, I never did get arrested for a DUI, um, pretty much because I always knew if I was going out to drink, I was getting hammered. So I, I never, never drove. Um, but anyway, at one point I got deployed to Honduras and, um, and I met a young lady there and, um, it started getting serious. And all of a sudden I started caring about life a little bit more and, um, uh, not to get too far down that path, but, um, we, we ended up going out and I knew the first time we went out, I'm going to marry this girl. Um, so it was about a year later, um, I did marry her and, um, we, I married her just a couple months before I got out of the army. And so we got out of the army. We went back to Indiana and, um, my, my first job I got out of, out of, uh, out of the army was fixing copiers for $5 an hour. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I, the one thing about getting married, it didn't fix everything. I was still drinking, but only on the weekends. But I, 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 I felt this sense of responsibility, like, wow, I've, I've got a wife now. I gotta, I gotta work hard. I gotta. So I, when I got my first paycheck, after they subtracted the health insurance and everything, I saw right away this is not going to be enough to live off of. So, but I did what I had to do. I got second jobs. I, um, uh, one of the things that I did. So the, this pharmaceutical company I mentioned, my dad worked for. Um, both of his parents also worked for that same company. And my mom worked for that company until she got pregnant with me. And that's where I really wanted to work. And so that was the first place I applied when I got out of the army. But sometimes, you know, places like that, it's not a fast process. Right. Right. Um, but there I was fixing copiers, not making enough money. So one of the things I did was um, I had the name of a guy in HR. So I wrote him a letter. Um and I basically said, hey, look, this is my family history. These are all the people who've worked there. I want to work here. I really want to work at this company. And I'm not going to rest until I work at this company. <laughs> um, I think it was like maybe a week or two after I sent the letter, they called me back in for another interview. Oh, wow. And, uh, oh, wow. and I ended up getting the job. Um, and I heard you talk about how, you know, getting your job was life changing for you. Yeah. This yep. was this was that for me. Okay. Um, okay. Even though it wasn't like, um, you know, I was in some elite position. I mean, I started out at this pharmaceutical company as a, my job title was utility operator. Okay. And what that okay. basically meant was um, I mixed up gelatin and dyes to make capsules and I swept the floor and I made sure the paper towel dispensers were full. And it wasn't a glamorous job, but it was a good company. You're good benefits. You are essentially the grunt of the company. I was. Yeah, I was great. And I was OK with that um, because, you know, one of the, the one person who was really a positive influence in my life growing up, even when things were so bad, was my grandfather. Um, and when I when I joined the army initially, my first contract was to be a military policeman. Okay. And when my grandpa heard that, he was like, what are you doing? Why do you do you not know about the opportunities the army has? And he said, you need to go back and renegotiate your contract, do something else. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with police. I have full respect for police. That just wasn't my calling. So I ended up going back and getting a job in electronics, which gave me some good training. And so so my grandpa was good in that regard. But um, 
But yeah, so anyway, I was okay with starting at the bottom, working my way up, which I did. And I I did pretty well there. Um, And then the interesting thing was, so there I was, I had the job I wanted. I had a wife. And and in 1990, we had our our first child. So my, my oldest daughter was born and I was starting to have everything that I wanted. I had I had a good job. I had the job I wanted. I had my wife. I had a daughter. I, I and not only that, we had just built a house, um, which in 1992 we built our first house, and that's the first house I ever lived in. My entire life was in apartments, so I'd never lived lived in a house before. So I had everything, but yet American dream. It was the American dream. Yeah, I did. Yeah, exactly. I had the American dream, but yet for some reason, I just still felt empty. I just, I couldn't explain. I was like, man, I have everything, but I feel so dissatisfied and empty. And um, there's a quote by a guy named C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you know him or not, but yeah, he's Narnia. <laughs> he wrote yeah, exactly. He yeah. wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. So yeah. people might have seen that movie, the, the movies made of that. Um, but but there's a quote by him that says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Um, and that quote has really resonated with me because of what I was going through at this time and the way I felt. And there was no reason. There was no reason to feel inside. I had everything I wanted. Um, now, I will say I was not brought up in church at all. Um, and actually, at that time, had you asked me, I would have definitely told you I was an atheist. Um, but my wife, actually, she wasn't a Christian when we got married. But very shortly after we got married, she became a Christian. Um, and then I had my grandfather, who I mentioned we were close to. We, he was a Christian. And, um, and when I got out of the Army, he and I became really good friends. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him. And if there was an Indiana University basketball game on, I was probably at his house in his living room watching it with him. Um, But I knew he was a Christian. And there was one time where he actually had one of the pastors at his church come and visit my house to visit me and try to talk to me. And uh, I remember it was raining outside and uh, there was a ring at the doorbell. I opened the door. I saw him and he said, hi, I'm pastor such and such from such and such church. Wonder if we could come in and talk to you. I said, not interested. Slam the door in his face. So I was not interested. Um, but, but that prompted me to ask my grandpa one time while we were watching a basketball game, what is it with Christians? Why, why do you feel like you got to ram it down everybody's throat? Why can't you just go to church, have fun, sing your song, just leave everybody else alone. Right. And I remember that he said, hmm, yeah, that's a good question. Why would somebody go out in the rain and subject themselves to somebody slamming a door in their face? <laughs> why, why would they bring that upon themselves? Maybe they have something that's so good that they feel they need to share it. So, uh, okay. I, I thought that was an okay answer. Um, and I would find myself wondering sometimes, and I would like kind of blurt out, short little prayers in my head, like, God, if you really are there, just show yourself to me. I mean, if I'm supposed to be acknowledging you or following you, just just show yourself to me. Nothing? Okay. And um, 
Then something interesting happened. So again, everything was going well in my life. One night I was in our brand new home. I was sitting down watching Monday night football and a guy in the stand had a big sign he was holding up. And, you know, a lot of times people have a sign that says John 316. This was something different because even though I wasn't brought up in church, I, I knew what John 316 was or the basic idea behind it. Right. But John 33, right. this guy had a sign that said John 33. I was like, wonder what that is. So I asked my wife, hey, do you have a Bible? And I imagine she probably about knocked me over with, you know, the fact that I was even interested. But um, but she gave me the Bible and I looked up that verse and it says it's the verse where uh, it says you must be born again. So I was like, ah, OK, that's that born again business, whatever. Um, but then there was the Bible in my hands and I thought maybe I should read it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of searching. Why don't I read the Bible? And uh, so this was a King James version of the Bible. Okay. And I tried to read the Bible different times in my life, and it was pretty boring, I thought. So I thought, well, let me read Revelations, because that's where the good stuff is, right? So I tried to read Revelation in a King James Bible, and I had no idea what I was reading. It was <laughs> gibberish as far as I was concerned. Um, so I started thinking, okay, well, maybe that's why people go to church. Maybe you need... You need to you need a pastor to help you understand it or something. So I told my wife, my wife was at that time um, regularly attending a, a church where they they spoke both Spanish and English. And so I told my wife, look, I'll go visit church with you once, but I just want to sit in the back. I don't want anybody driving me nuts just because I show a little interest. And she's like, yeah, OK, fine. Yeah. So. So I went to her church. Well, it turns out it was a church of about 30 people. So there's no such thing as hiding in the back. <laughs> of course, I met everyone. I met the pastor. And um, yeah, so I sat there, I sat through the church. I, I didn't really um, get much out of that first time, really. So I went home. And the next Tuesday... I got a phone call from that pastor. Hey, Tim, this is the pastor. I was wondering if we could come and visit you. And I said, no, you cannot. And I hung up the phone and I started yelling at my wife. I knew it. I knew if I showed a little interest, they were going to start trying to beat my door down. Um, but then I started thinking, I'm the one searching here. He's, he's willing to come and talk to me. Why not talk to him? So I went back to church the next Sunday and um, I, I approached him afterwards and I said, hey, if you're going to visit people this week, you can come and visit me. He said, great, we'll come and visit you Tuesday. So um, he came and he brought a guy with him who was um, a missionary to Brazil, but was home on furlough. And he um, he they started talking to me. And one of the things that was a hang up for me was the smoking. So I was still by this, you know, I was smoking two packs a day on a regular basis, wow. tried to quit a couple of times. And in my head, I thought, well, Christians can't smoke. You know, I'm not trying to say that now. I'm not I, I didn't understand Christianity, but that's what I thought in my head. So that was one thing I was saying, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. But they came and they talked to me. And I'm telling you, this guy 
who was the the missionary in Brazil, it was as if he could read my mind. They they talked to me, um, you know, and they just told me the basics that God created me, that we all fall short of his glory, we, we, that Jesus came to save the world. You trust in him and follow him. You'll be saved and you live for him. But man, that smoking thing was in the back of my mind. But anyway, this other guy, he looked at me and he said, you know what, Tim? A lot of people think that they have to fix themselves before they can come to Jesus. He said, it doesn't work like that. You come to Jesus. He'll do the work in you that he wants to do. And it clicked. And it was like a light switch came on. And what I didn't believe before, I did believe. Um, and so that, that night, um, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, 1992, um, I asked Jesus to come into my life and, and I would follow him. So um, you know, I guess that now makes me a Christian. Um, and so this is this is the part where, again, I hope I don't get on a soapbox here. But I'm probably going to for a little bit if <laughs> you're, you're, okay. you're okay. if you'll allow me. You're okay. You're I, okay. I hate labels. I, I despise labels. I look around our country right now and I see that people want to put a label on you so that they can then pigeonhole you and apply all of what they think that means onto you and judge you. Right. I mean, it's a a simplistic way of looking at things. It is. It's very simplistic, but I mean, we certainly see it with politics, right? If I call you a Republican, I can put all of what I think that means onto you. If I call you a liberal, I can put all of what I think that means onto you. And it's just all keeps us divided. Yep. And unfortunately, I, I think that's been done to the word Christian. I think, um, and, and part of it, I think the blame falls on Christians or people who call themselves Christians. Um, you know, I listened to your story and I cringed at some of the things I heard because I see it all the time. People who say that they're Christians um, do things quite contrary to what what they are. And again, I'm not here to judge anybody. I am certainly imperfect myself. Um, But I am a person who, um, I read the Bible almost every single day. My my morning typically starts out with, I come into my office by myself early. Um, I spend some time praying. I read and I study the Bible. um, And that kind of helps me get aligned. Um, I, I need that. Um, but in, in, so I've been a Christian for 28 years now. And, and if I can, instead of using that label Christian, if you'll allow, I'll, I'd rather be referred to as a follower of Jesus because I don't like some of the stuff that's been attached to it. It's a but term. yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's too easy to claim that. Um, but, but if I look at the entire Bible, which so many people misused to pick out this verse and that verse and and they use it as a book of oh you can't do this and you can't do that that's not the story of the bible at all the story of the bible is that we all fall short jesus came to not just save us it's not fire insurance to keep us from going to hell he his intention is that we become part of his family and that we then communicate and share that love with the world 
I mean, it really boils down into we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if people who call themselves Christians are running around, wagging their finger in people's face, tying themselves to a certain political party, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm probably starting to get on that, on that soapbox. But I'll tell you something that really helps me. There, there are some verses in the Bible that, um, so, so Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, evildoers. So, you know, Jesus is basically saying there's a lot of people out there who think they're followers of me and they're going to find out too late that they're not. That haunts me. That, you know, I don't want to be that person. I want to be that guy who's loving people like I'm supposed to um, and loving everybody. I mean, there are so many people out there who are misfortunate, homeless, you, you name it. And and for many years of my life, I spent time with Christians who, instead of reaching out to help those who are downtrodden, they want to try to say, well, why are they that way? Or is there substance abuse involved? Or I don't want to enable them. And, and you know what? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus met people right where they were. And he tells us to love people the same way. So, um, yeah. Anyway, back to my, back to how that applied to my life. So so my wife and I, we were, you know, again, now I had more of a sense of purpose in my life. Um, and my wife and I and my, our children, uh, that we had, uh, we grew up to three kids um, at that time. We started going to a very large church uh, in uh, on the north side of Indianapolis. And um, we just felt every week we'd go to church, we'd hear the word, and we felt compelled to serve more, do more. And eventually that led, surprisingly, the job I worked so hard to get at the pharmaceutical company. Um, I ended up leaving that job, and my wife and I... Uh, went to work for a nonprofit organization who uh, their primary mission was to, excuse me, teach the Bible to kids in uh, after school programs and backyard Bible clubs. Um, so we started doing that as volunteers first. And then eventually the opportunity opened up for us to do that full time. You quit your job, you quit your job. To, yeah. go, to go do that. For, for not, you're not making any money whatsoever. Yeah. So what the way that worked was, um, you had to raise your own financial support. Okay. So it's kind of like missionary work. It, it is exactly like missionary work. And our intention really when we went into it was that eventually we would go overseas. Okay. Um, but my wife being a native Spanish speaker, we, we kind of thought we'd probably end up in Central America or Latin America somewhere. Um, but at the time, what we saw was, um, you know, this would be in the 90s now, and there was a huge influx of Latin Americans into the Indianapolis area. And so we kind of thought, well, we don't really need to go anywhere. They're coming to us. But what we did do was, yeah, I, I quit that job. Uh, people thought I was crazy. Um, but, but really when I look back on it, God changed the desires of my heart so that it was an easy decision for me. It wasn't hard at all. I just did what I wanted to do. 
Um, so we quit and not only did we, I quit the job, but we also sold our, that house we built in the suburbs. Um, we sold it and we moved into the inner city. Um, so we were doing inner city work. Um, and, um, and we did that for five years. Um, so you can see at this point, there's already a, a rising above story there, right? The childhood was kind of shaky. And, but as I'm sure you've probably seen and will probably see all your life, rising above is more of a, a mentality or an attitude because you're probably going to have to do it more than once. Yeah. And um, this this next part uh, is just really hard because um, after five years, we we finally felt like God was leading us to go to Nicaragua as missionaries in Nicaragua. And we were well on our way. Um, we had already visited a couple of times. We had housing lined up. We pulled our kids out of their private school and we purchased homeschool materials. We were almost there. And then in 2005, my life came unraveled. Um, it started the first, the first little piece of it was, you know, there we were a nice little family with three kids. Our youngest was nine at the time. And my wife became pregnant. Um, you know, after so much time without having a kid, I guess you forget what can happen if you're not careful, but, um, <laughs> she became pregnant again. So we thought through that and said, well, okay, you know, maybe we just delay our, our, um, going to Nicaragua a little bit till after the baby's born. Um, and then like a month later, um, I had a minor health problem that I went to the doctor for. Um, but in the process, he heard my heart murmur, which I had all my life, but he, he just felt like he wanted me to get checked out. So he ordered an echocardiogram. And then again, 2005, August 19th, I remember it well, because that's my birthday. On my birthday, I found out I had an aneurysm on my aorta. But what I also found out that day is that some people in the organization, the missions organization that we were working for, completely betrayed me and said some things about me that were not true and basically submarine and derailed my application to Nicaragua and it got denied. Wow. I, I, I mean, I was just blindsided. I was totally betrayed. Uh, but now all of a sudden I found myself with an aneurysm um, and I was, the, I had strict orders not to lift anything over 10 pounds. So I really wasn't very employable. So not not only did my application get declined, but they also terminated me from the, or, the, the missions organization. The mission organization that I raised my own support, I, they terminated me. Um, so I was terminated. I had an aneurysm, unemployable, and my wife is pregnant. Um, but this was a time where God provided through his people because the people at our church came around us. They, um, they helped us. Um, I did get an odd job for a while. I, for just for maybe two months, I was working, um, cleaning offices during on the night shift. It was like 5 PM to 1 AM. I was cleaning offices, but then me and my employer kind of get, I was, I was managing about 25 people cleaning offices. And so in that line of work, a lot of times people don't show up for work. And so that meant I had to do their work. So a lot of times instead of one o'clock in the morning, I was there till three or four o'clock in the morning in offices and 
and I was alone. And so the employer and I kind of came to the agreement that with my aneurysm, that's probably not a good idea. You know, would not be good for business if uh, they came in and found their cleaning person dropped dead during the night. All right. So I didn't have that job. But anyway, the, so so the people in our church, they they knew our whole story. They kind of came together and they came up with this. They basically pooled up a bunch of money, opened up an account and paid all of our bills. Um, so it wasn't until, um, January of 2006. So in the, and you know, during that time I was unemployed for about eight or nine months. Um, but in, in January of 2006, I had open heart surgery, um, to repair my aneurysm, which is a weird thing because the aneurysm, I had no, no symptoms. Um, but I was a walking time bomb. Um, but once I went into the hospital and had open heart surgery, then I felt pretty bad. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. But then as it turns out, I was still recovering from that in March of 2006 when our fourth child was born. And, you know, don't get me wrong, complete blessing. Yes, it was a surprise, but she's an absolute blessing. And she's 14 now. And um, it was great. But, yeah, so she was born. And then in April of 2006, I started a new job, uh, with a very good company. Um, and interestingly, that pool of money that that was pulled together, it ran out just as I got my first paycheck at that job. So all of our needs were, were supplied, God provided. Um, and, and I was, you know, you would think that's a spiritual high, uh, and it kind of was, but then, you know, I started this new job at this new company and I had to start at the bottom again. Um, so I was you know, back at the bottom. But what I have found in my life, starting at the bottom, wherever you start, if you show up for work at the time that you're supposed to be there, maybe even a little early, you you work hard, um, you'd be willing to do extra, be willing to learn try to learn more about the business. That's been very beneficial for me. So everywhere I've ever worked, that's suited me well. And, and at this, at the company that I got hired in at that time, I advanced right up, did really well. But the bad thing that happened is I started letting bitterness take hold. Instead of focusing on the hundreds of people who surrounded us and showed us love, I started focusing on those few people who did me wrong. Um, and I guess you could say I was also a little bit mad at God, which seems ridiculous to me. Oh, who am I to be mad at God? But, but I was, and I let it and see that bitterness and it doesn't same for me. It could happen same for you. I noticed you don't have that bitterness in you. And that's what allows you to rise above and succeed. If you focus on that bitterness, it's like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. right. You're, you're only hurting yourself. And for me, it, it, it really affected my life in a, in a negative way. Um, I pulled away from church and I pulled away from God. Um, I didn't like fall into a life of sin. I didn't go back to drugs. I, I didn't cheat on my wife or anything like that. But I just distanced myself from the church and from God. And that went on for probably a good nine years or so. Oh, wow. Um, and I, I really wasn't going to church and it was at a bad time too. I mean, my kids were in high school at that time and I, I wasn't the example I wish I would have been 
for them at that time. But um, then I got an opportunity with that company I was working for to uh, relocate. And so I relocated from Indiana to South Carolina. Um, and that move, which is something I really welcome, the, the older I got, I became a real wuss as it pertains to winter. I don't know how you live where you do, buddy. Cause uh, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully someday you'll have the same opportunity to relocate. I hope so. But, uh, but for us, it was really good. We, um, and so at this point, you know, our kids were older. Um, my oldest was married and, uh, they now have two kids, but they moved down here as well. So my daughter, her husband, and now we have two granddaughters. They live about 30 minutes away. So that's great. Um, and then, my number three child, second son, he moved down here with us. And then, of course, our youngest moved with us. Our oldest son, um, he still lives in, in Indianapolis with his wife. But, um, but when we moved, I, I guess, again, that change of environment, you know, so I see a pattern. When I was in that bad neighborhood, moved in with my dad, the change of environment was a big turning point. Uh, this time it was as well, because now... Um, I've been able to get back in church and um, I think I'm stronger now through that. Although I went, you know, what I refer to as my time in the desert where I really wasn't following God. Um, now that I am again, I have just a deeper passion um, uh, and I really want to serve more. And I really have a vision for the downtrodden, the homeless and, you know, the people that are, you know, a lot of people drive by, look away. Um, but that Jesus would embrace. That's that's really what I want to be about now. Um, so to kind of bring things back a little bit, you said your your mom moved to the North Carolina or South Carolina. She moved to North Carolina. North yeah. Carolina. So you're kind of closer to your. Mother. We are. We are. And and you know we we I mentioned we've had kind of a distance strain. It's been strained over the years a lot. But I I tell you, my mom is a person. I don't know anybody who who has risen above more than her. She she's really made a great life for herself. We are we are much closer now. Um, we do talk more on a regular basis. There's definitely I have definitely no ill feelings toward either of my parents. Um, but yeah, so that relationship is definitely better these days. So now I'm assuming you can probably see her a little bit more often. And yeah, yeah, COVID is kind of you know she she's remarried and her and her husband. Um, live up in North Carolina and yeah, with COVID, it makes it kind of tough, but yes, we do see each other more often now. Okay. That's good. Um, so you said you have a passion for the homeless and helping out essentially the less fortunate. Um, so what are you doing? What is your plans and what's your ideas on possibly helping these people? Yeah, that's, it, the timing on this is incredible because, um, so we, um, we actually just joined a, a different church than we were going to. It's a it's a very large church. Uh, it's a it's a, a diverse multicultural church, um, and we just joined a couple weeks ago. And so my wife and I have been trying to find out where we want to get plugged in. And all their services are virtual right now. Um, and this in just this morning service, they talked about a project that they're involved in. Um, where they're actually building housing and they're, and they're trying to get home, you know, having a place for homeless and serving the needs of homeless. We just saw that this morning and said, that's the place where we want to be involved. Wow. Um, wow. So up to this point, we haven't done anything 
um, other than some light giving here and there. But um, that's this just this morning. We both felt like that's where we want to serve. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well, um, your story is absolutely amazing. Um, I've been super excited to sit down and talk with you ever since you emailed me. Um, I don't even know really what to look back and reflect on, but all I have to say is, you know, it's, it's a remarkable how someone can come from the position you were in where you're taking, you're on the streets, taking drugs and your life would have taken a completely different turn had you, you know, possibly not joined the military. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, a lot about some of the kids that were my friends at that time and some of them are dead. Yeah. Um, one of my best friends when I was 10 died in prison. Um, sometimes I ask myself, why me? But, um, you know, I've just been very fortunate. I agree. Um, and you and your family are amazing. You guys have always been great to me. And I uh, just, yeah, I don't know. It, your story is remarkable. I don't know what to say. <laughs> and, and I think there, and I, I don't think there's any accidents fully. I, I've laid myself out there today. Who you, this is who I am. Um, I'm, if, if anything that I said today came across as self-righteous or holier than thou, I, then I blew it because that's not my intention. I am, I am a mess myself. I'm still struggling every day, but I have learned some things that have got me through in life. Um, and again, you mentioned the American dream. It is alive and well. Do not let anybody tell you that it's not. Um, we live in a society that is so quick to embrace victimhood. And that makes me sick because I see too many people overcoming and too many people able to rise above. For me, I got to tell you, though, I could not rise above had it not been for Jesus being risen from the dead. So I thought I wanted to make that little connection there. But um, that, yeah, so. There are a lot of things, a lot of people, a lot of help I got along the way. But for me, apart from Jesus, I'd be a, just a complete and utter mess. All right. I think we'll leave it at that. You did really good, Tim. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Your, thanks, your, David. Your story, your story is amazing, and uh, um, I'm glad you came on to share with me. So. I, th I appreciate the opportunity, and I, I really hope that this podcast reaches a lot of people and communicates that message to them that you are not what happened to you, and right. you are not right. a product of your environment. You have the ability. This is the United States of America. You know, I don't know how far the podcast goes. Maybe in some other countries, maybe there's not a lot of opportunity. But if you're born in America, that's only about 4% of the world's population. You've already hit the lottery as far as opportunity goes, so. Yep, it's true. Um, so with that being said, I think we'll kind of end the podcast there, Tim. And uh, I really appreciate it again. And I'm uh, gonna send you a text after this because I wanna send you some stuff. Okay. Podcast swag, as the kids okay, call it great. these days. <laughs> awesome. All right, um, well, thanks for coming on, Tim. And uh, it's been nice talking to you. It's been great talking to you too, David. All right, bye. Bye.